Engaging Leader Podcast, Episode 64. Five Principles of Ultimate Influence, Turning Adversaries into Allies, featuring Bob Berg. inspire trust, passion, and action? Welcome to the Engaging Leader Podcast with Jesse Leahy, consultant, writer, and speaker. Jesse has helped executives engage hundreds of thousands of people. Join us now for principles to communicate, engage, and lead with greater impact. Welcome to the show, Engagers. I am very excited to introduce our guest today, Bob Berg, who I originally discovered a few years ago. He was the author of The Go-Giver, the Go-Giver and uh, that's my tongue slip there is exactly because it's the book is all about the difference between go-getters and go-givers, which of course Bob is recommending. And his latest book has just come out. It's called Adversaries into Allies, Win People Over Without Manipulation or Coercion. Bob Berg, thank you for joining us on Engaging Leader. It's so great to be here. Thanks for having me. Bob, as I read this book, it struck me as how to win friends and influence people, but for the 21st century, or maybe how to win friends and influence people from the go-giver perspective. It was uh, I, I was surprised how many things resonated with me going all the way back to probably two decades ago when I first read How to Win Friends and Influence People. But the whole emphasis was positioned around influencing others for good and, and for a, a mutual win-win relationship. I'm, I was just wondering, how much were you actually inspired by Win Friends and Influence People as you were writing this book? Well, just that you're including my book in the same sentence as How to Win Friends and Influence People, Dale Carnegie's famous classic, is something I take as a great compliment. <laughs> uh, that was a, a book that I have found to be a wonderful, wonderful book and resource and I recommend it, I think, at every uh, speaking engagement. Um, you, you're right that it is uh, very much, it's, the, it's sort of the third law of the go-giver, from the go-giver, the law of influence. And I was also very, very fortunate that I'm the son of a guy who is a great influencer, a, a man who just had people, had just a natural sense of people skills, probably because of a natural love of people and an ability to, to bring out the best in others. So uh, a couple of great parents that I could learn from. My dad, I'm more like my dad in which we tend to be more in the public eye. And I, I just got to see him deal with people in just such a positive way, in such a, a terrific way. Uh, and so I, I really... I. You know, this, this book is really, I, I say it's carrying on my dad's legacy, but I've certainly read also plenty of books on on influence and persuasion and so forth. And you, and certainly people like Dale Carnegie are just, uh, you know, a key when it comes to being able to, to, uh, to work with people. And, you know, that's, so that's a, a great compliment to me that you even, that you, that you even brought it up along with Dale's book. <laughs> Now, you mentioned the word influence, and you use that throughout the book, and I love your term, your, your concept of ultimate influence, and I wondered if you could explain what you mean by that, and in particular, one thing I'm interested in, you, you quoted John Maxwell saying, influence is everything, and I talk about influence a lot too, but often people push back and question and, and, because they feel like influence sounds like manipulation, and I think you do a great job of, of explaining the difference in your book. 
Uh, well, thank you. There are a few points there. So if I forget one, please come back and, and remind me to, to pick up on that. Um, let's first just define influence. And, you know, we can all define things certain ways. And, and we go back, we can go to a dictionary definition, we can go to our own definitions and, and, and modern definitions and so forth. Uh, I define influence as simply the ability to move a person or persons to a desired action, usually within the context of a, a specific goal. Uh, now, on a bit deeper level, you could say that influence is an unseen flow of power. And I think that would be accurate. I think both of those definitions are accurate, but I don't think either one really captures the essence of influence. See, I believe influence is pull. It's a gentle pull. And, you know, you never hear people say, wow, that, you know, Dave Smith or, or Patricia Jones is so influential. She has a lot of push with people. It's always, you know, they have a lot of, of pull because that's what influence is. It, it's pull. Uh, John Maxwell, of course, says leadership is influence, nothing more, nothing less. And influence is everything. And I believe in the context that Dr. Maxwell is certainly one of my favorite speakers and authors. In, in the context that he says that, I, I think that's true because if you cannot influence others, if you cannot move them to a, a desired and appropriate action, then nothing really gets accomplished. Nothing happens. Now, ultimate influence, I really define as nothing more than the ability to get what you want from others, but in such a way that they feel genuinely good about themselves, about you, and about the transaction, about the results. And, and that, I think, is where uh, the difference between what I would call persuasion and manipulation comes into play. Because the big difference is in the intent, but also in the results. Uh, Dr. Paul Sweats, uh, back a couple of decades ago, in his excellent book uh, called The Art of Talking So That People Will Listen, which was really much more about listening than it was about talking, and it was a brilliant book. Uh, he sort of summarized the difference between the two, between manipulation and persuasion, as, as follows. He said, manipulation aims at control, not cooperation. It does not consider the good of the other party. As a result, it, it tends to be a, a win-lose situation. Now, in contrast to the manipulator, says Dr. Sweats, the persuader seeks to enhance the self-esteem of the other party. The result is that people respond better because they're treated as responsible, response-able, self-directing individuals. So to me, the, the difference begins with the intent, but it's also in the results. Because think about it, uh, this on a, on a couple of levels. One is that, you know, if you, that, that a manipulator as a leader, let's say, a manipulator can have employees, but, but not a team, not a team of people who are committed. Now, they may do things based on compliance, typically a function of positional authority, right, or positional leadership. The person has a title and, and, and bullies and cajoles and manipulates. People might, might do what they have to do to keep their job, but they're certainly not going to show the kind of commitment to this leader that's going to have great results. My, my great friend, Dondi Scumachi, a terrific speaker and author uh, on leadership and influence, uh, I love what she says. She says, 
compliance will never take you where commitment can go. Mm. And so when you've got that leader, if you will, or, or what have you, or that salesperson or that family member or whatever who relies on compliance, and that's part of manipulation, you know, manipulation, compliance, force, all those things. Uh, so again, you can you can be a leader who manipulates, and that's fine. But you're not going to have committed team members. You can be a salesperson who manipulates, and you might make a sale. You're certainly not going to have repeat customers and ones who are your personal walking ambassadors. And as a family member, uh, you can have a family of people you love and, and who love you. But it's probably not going to be a very functional family. So manipulation tends to be not. Uh, it tends to be incorrect both in intent and counterproductive in terms of results. You know, when you first mentioned that definition of ultimate influence and you talked about uh, influencing so that people actually feel good about the outcome, uh, at, at first I was, that rubbed me the wrong way because I thought about some of the negotiation techniques out there where you basically are manipulating the situation so it feels enough like a win-win that in the moment the other party says, okay, we'll do that. But in the long run, they're not, they're not going to feel good about it a week from now or a year from now. And I think that your perspective, your intent there is definitely for that long-term win. It goes back to your law of influence from the go-giver when you're, you're talking about, some, I think it was something like your influence is, is going to be directly related to how much more you care about other, what other people want and need than about yourself. Well, yeah, how abundantly you place other people's interests first. And that's not for uh, and it's not for some self-sacrificial reason or, or some or, or being a martyr. It's good business and it's good people. You know, it's good. It's just a good way to be when we play. If you look at the great leaders out there and if you look at the top influencers and if you look at the very highly profitable salespeople, they conduct their lives and run their businesses that way. They're always looking for ways to add value to the lives of other people. And again, when you talk about making people feel good, short term or and long, it's both. It's short term mm -hmm. and long term. I mean, you know, why would we want to make someone feel bad short term? <laughs> you know, <laughs> long term. Mm -hmm. uh, we want them to feel good short term and long term. But again, that's where uh, you know uh, the difference between manipulation and. Uh, and persuasion comes in. If we're doing it correctly and we're doing it with an authenticity, uh, an authenticity and a genuineness about us, we truly want that other person to profit. And one of the great things about a free market transaction where both parties are only going to act because they feel there's a benefit to doing so is that both parties can and should profit in that negotiation. And I, I agree. And I think recognizing that, n number one, it makes you more likely to be operating for people's own good, for, for what's good for them. But also when you are communicating with them, and you go into this in your book too, knowing that other people ultimately only care about how they are impacted by anything, I think helps you keep in mind that you need to be framing things from their perspective, both in what you do and, and how you say it. In your book, you say people do things for their reasons, not our reasons. And I'm sure somebody would say, but are, are people really that selfish? I mean, how do you answer that question? Yeah, and actually, that, that was a direct quote uh, from Dale Carnegie from, from How to Win Friends and Influence People. He said, ultimately, people do things for their reasons, not our reasons. And I think it's so wise and so profound to understand that people are going to do things because they believe 
It is going to to make them happier to do it than to not do it. And that's what we've got to understand. Uh, it has nothing to do with selfishness or unselfishness. I mean, you know, we could say when you know, break up the word selfish, it means it's about the self. You know, it means that, uh, that, that people are human beings and they're going to do what, what they believe is going to make them happy. Now, someone might say, well, wait a second, Bob. What about someone who gives, you know, who writes a $10,000 check to charity? Okay, to help people who are less fortunate. That's totally unselfish. No, it's not. The person's <laughs> doing that because it aligns with their value system. They're going to feel better about themselves by having written that $10,000 check for charity than if they spent it on something frivolous or something that didn't provide them with as much meaning. I don't know, Bob. You sound awfully cynical there. <laughs> Why? Oh, no. Just the opposite. I have no problem with, with that. I, I think that's a wonderful thing to understand, that money is not necessarily everybody's prime motivator, that we want to feel good about ourselves. As human beings, we're, you know, we seek happiness. Uh, we part of, you know, what's the, the first part of the, you know, the, uh, uh, the American dream, right, to in the first right that we have, that, that people are able to seek happiness, the pursuit of happiness. There's nothing wrong with that. But happiness doesn't necessarily mean that you uh, eat three pizzas and, you know, two candy bars and fill yourself up like that. It might mean that you do something like, uh, you know, bring food to the homeless. But I'm going to say that's not necessarily unselfish. That is someone who is their way of making themselves happy, which you would call self-ish, looking at the self, is to provide joy and help to other people. I don't think that's cynical at all. I think that's terrific. Now, your book is called Adversaries into Allies. And there's one book, when I got done reading the whole book, there was one story that I hadn't heard before that totally caught my attention. And I remembered uh, later that I, I thought really crystallized what you, a, a great example of turning an adversary into ally. And I wonder if the... Uh, the story about Ben Franklin and, and the enemy in the book is fresh enough in your mind that you could tell us that story. Oh, well, that's one of my favorite stories. I'm a, I'm a real uh, Franklin file. I just absolutely love Ben Franklin. Uh, I've studied Franklin, and, and I just, anytime I can get my hands on, on something Franklin, uh, I'll read it. I, and, and he had a great, great way with people. Now, this was not always the case. Uh, early in his, his career, if you will, he realized that the way he communicated with people sometimes did not really serve him and didn't serve others. Um, you know, he would, he could, he could outwit people in arguments. He could make them look silly. He could, but you know, was that making people feel good about themselves? No. Was it making them feel good about him? No, not at all. And he realized being ambitious as he was, if he was going to accomplish the things he wanted, he was going to have to improve himself and some of his character traits, including how he got along with others. And uh, I, I suggest his book, Benjamin Franklin, The Autobiography, to, to anyone who really wants to learn how to be successful. It's a magnificent book, and he talks about this in his book. But anyway, in this particular case, there was a person who politically uh, was opposed to Franklin, and, uh, and, and even though the person, it wasn't a direct threat at the moment, he knew this person was a, a person with great potential who was going to amass power, and he knew that in time this person could be trouble. And the person just didn't like Franklin. 
And so Ben was determined to win him over. And in this case, rather than trying to do something for that person and put that person in his debt, if you will, Franklin decided to instead ask a favor of him. And he asked basically to borrow a book. The person was known to have a collection of, of old books that he was very, very proud of. And uh, Franklin sent a messenger over to, to ask if he could borrow one of the books. And, and the person was happy to lend it to him. And, and Franklin you know, sent back his thanks with the book and made some comments. And, the, and it's funny, the next time they saw each other, the person greeted Franklin very, in a very friendly manner, which according to Franklin, the person had never done before. And from that point on, the two of them became lifelong friends. And what it was, it was sort of a reversal in a sense in that we think, you know, do something nice for someone and they'll appreciate And by the way, that, that could very well be true. And that's something that's very uh, that's that's also very, uh, uh, very proper. But in this case, there's another way. And that is to allow someone to do a favor for you. And when they do that, they tend to feel good about you. Now, this ties in, in a sense, to Dr. Robert Cialdini's work. He wrote the, the classic influence, Science and Practice, along with some other excellent books, where he talks about the law of consistency. And what's interesting is when someone does something, that action causes them to believe more in what they did. So this person lending a book to Ben Franklin, well, you'd only lend a book to someone you like, right? And so from that point on, he, you know, he followed his, his, uh, he followed his action with a, a consistent feeling. That sounds like a tip that obviously tur it turned an adversary into allies. And it was just one of many stories in, in the book about how, how you can really get people to a more helpful situation where you create a win-win together. And one of the things when I first read it, I I thought it, it comes across like, wow, I'm I'll just never be smart enough to think of that tactic and, and all these other tactics that you share in the book. But what I think is helpful is the book is organized around five principles. And when you study the five principles, that that thing that, that Franklin did, which just sounds like a tactic, is actually just a consistent part of your nature. And so I thought we could touch on these five principles in the book. We probably don't have time to go into deeply into each one of them, but we could touch on them and, and maybe dig into two or three of them. But you call them the five principles of ultimate influence. And the first one is control your own emotions. How do you define that? Well, that's where it all starts. And it's, it's based on a saying from the sages who asked, uh, who is mighty? And they answered that person who can control their own emotions and make of an enemy or a potential enemy a friend. And really what that means is it's only when you're in control of yourself that you're then positioned to take a potentially negative situation or uh, person. But if you if you can't control your own emotions and you just, you know, go you just blow up because somebody does something that pushes a button. Uh, you know, hey, it, it's not going to be uh, it's not going to be productive for anyone. Now we know that no one can make us angry, make us mad, make us sad, or make us anything. But as human beings, hey, we know people can certainly do things that push our buttons, right? And if we're not in control of ourselves, what we're going to do, and Zig Ziglar said this so well, we'll react rather than respond. And I loved how he talked about that. Reacting is, a po reacting is negative, responding is positive. When you react, then you're allowing other people to control you. 
When you respond, you're in control of yourself. And again, that's when good things can happen. So it always, always begins with controlling your own emotions, being in control of yourself. See, as human beings, we are emotional creatures. We are emotional beings. Now, we're logical to a certain point, but we're very emotional. We make decisions emotionally, and emotions often control us. It's not that I'm suggesting that anyone be some type of robot and, and lose their emotions. No, emotions are a great part of life. They make life worthwhile. But again, going back to one of my mentors, Dondi Scumachi, she says, hey, Take your emotions along for the ride, but make sure you are in the driver's seat mm. and they're on the passenger side. Mm-hmm. I have had a difficult time sometimes explaining the difference between responding and reacting because they sound awfully familiar. But I loved your quote from Zig Ziglar that you just referenced, and when he said he's it was sort of in the context of a doctor. Uh, who had prescribed some medication, and you said, uh, "Do did you respond well to the medication, or did you have a bad reaction?" So it, it helps you know. Okay, the responding is me uh, doing something well in, in the based on the the medication or whatever the the uh, situation is. Reacting is what something happens, what you allow happen to you. I remember listening to that to Zig, that vignette from Zig on a tape of his probably 30 years ago, and that made such a huge difference with me because I could sort of retrain myself at that point, you know, and, and say, well, okay, am I reacting to this or am I responding to this? So I think you bring up a terrific point. The second principle of ultimate influence is understand the clash of belief systems, which doesn't seem intuitive off the at first there. What do you mean by that? Well, what is a belief? A belief is the truth as we understand the truth to be. But that doesn't mean it necessarily is an objective truth. Beliefs are subjective. Truths are objective. Sometimes the two are not the same. Uh, we all have a belief system, in, let's say an operating system, uh, uh, based on beliefs that were handed to us from the time we were born, and they're formed very early, but they tend to be a, a combination of upbringing, environment, schooling, news media, television, movies, popular entertainment, popular culture. And remember, as, as a little kid, you're not... You're not critically thinking about everything that gets put into your mind. You're not questioning your premises. You're not saying, hmm, why is this true? Why should I believe this? Why should I accept this? Uh, instead, you just accept it. Yeah. And so uh, the, the trouble is, is, is most of us never stop accepting these things without questioning them. So if things come into our head and our, our belief systems, our model uh, for, uh, from which we, through which we see the world is formed very early and tends not to change. Now, put on top of that that, that we're not even aware of it. We're, we're basically servants of a belief system that we had nothing to do with creating and don't even know is running us. Put that on a, another level, the other person with whom you're having this, this potentially negative transaction, this person's run by a similar belief, or not a similar belief system, but similar to you, they're run by their own unconscious belief system. Now, one more thing, and this makes it even, even more difficult to deal with. Uh, as human beings, we tend to think that the way we see the world, our belief system, is the way 
others see the world as well. That's why you hear statements like, oh, everybody feels this way. Oh, nobody thinks that way. I would never say that to someone. I can't believe that for nobody ever does that. Well, that's, that's our belief system. It's not necessarily theirs. So what we need to do when there's a potentially difficult interpersonal transaction about to take place is it's not that we have to understand that person's belief system. We simply have to understand that their belief system is most likely very different from our belief system. And as long as we go in understanding that, now we're in a position to work within that context. So one little simple way to put that into action, I think goes back to an, another thing that you learned from Benjamin Franklin is how he learned to couch statements and opinions not rather than stating them as a fact. He would state them more as, uh, yeah, this is my opinion, or it seems to me. Am I, am I getting that right? Sure. And, and that's a wonderful way to do it, because what you're doing in that case is you're not making that person defensive. You're not causing them to, to put up a shield and, and resist. So when you say something like, it would seem to be, or based on, on you know, the way I'm seeing it, this would be such and such, or as I understand this to be, well, then that person's a lot more accepting that what you're doing is you're not being dogmatic and saying, I know the truth and this is the way it is, but instead you're being humble and you're, you're open to the fact that this person may see it a different way. Absolutely. And so even though there's a clash of belief systems, by acknowledging that up front, you're letting the other person relax a bit, and they may actually be more open to your way of viewing things. Number three is acknowledge their ego. Yeah, this is very important because the ego is, a, is very much a driver in most people. You know, we all have an ego, and, and there's nothing inherently wrong with having an ego, by the way. The ego is simply the I. It's that sense of ourself that understands that we are a unique individual separate from others. Now, I, I know this is not very politically correct to say sometimes, uh, to say we're separate from others, because aren't we all, you know, one, well, you know, in many ways we are. We're one family, we're one group of friends, we're one city, we're one neighborhood, we're one many things. But as human, and, and there's nothing wrong with that at all. I mean, and, and uh, Napoleon Hill talked about universal consciousness, and, and we know about that. That's fine. But th that does not conflict with there being in a, you know as as in our earthly experience we also live as individuals again with our own unique value system and our own unique sense of what makes us happy and so forth uh, again i you know just like we were talking about earlier i don't see that as being a negative i see that you know i think when we when we work with when we talk about people skills and influence What's very important is that we work within the frame of what is, not what we necessarily would like things to be had we created the world. And so we know that people as individuals, they all have their own unique sense of self. And the, the only, and when, you know, when we harness our ego, we can accomplish great things. It's when the ego gets away from us and controls us. In the book, I talk about it being uh, like a horse and a rider. The, the horse is a big, majestic, beautiful uh, creature, and when, when the rider is able to control the horse, you know, it can go great speeds, the power can be harnessed, it's wonderful. But if the horse is in control, 
and goes starts running wild, it's a danger to itself, it's a danger to its rider, it's a danger to everyone in its path. So as long as we control our ego, as opposed to the ego controlling us, we're fine. Now, the key is this. In dealing with difficult people, let's say, we understand that that person isn't necessarily in control of their ego. They don't even realize there's an ego at work. So we have to acknowledge that in any potentially difficult interpersonal transaction, the other person's ego will come into play. And again, as long as we're conscious of that, we can work within that. Yeah, that makes sense. That really, part of emotional intelligence would be being aware of your own ego that's going to come into play, as you say, and of course, the other person's ego is going to come into play. So I think that in the book, you provide many great tips about how to take that awareness and and be sensitive about that and, and use it to be, have effective influence. Number four is set the proper frame. Now, this I found very fascinating uh, because since 2004, the, the world of leadership communication has acknowledged this concept of framing and from, from an organizational level that leaders and organizations, when they communicate, they need to take care to set the proper frame. But I think you're the first person that I've seen bring that to the individual interpersonal level of being proactive and setting a, a proper frame. And uh, sometimes that's very simple. I, I love the story. Well, maybe you could define that for us. And, and then I, I like that very simple story you tell of, the, uh, of when you almost hit somebody in a parking lot. Uh, yeah. The, uh, well, frame is, is simply the foundation from which everything else uh, evolves. It, it all starts there. Uh, I tell the story very briefly in the book about a, a little boy who's probably a little older than two years old who was walking toward his uh, parents. It was at a Dunkin' Donuts. And as he was walking toward them, he, he took a fall. He uh, slipped and he, he fell. And he wasn't hurt, but you could tell uh, that he was certainly surprised. He was kind of shocked. He, he understood intuitively that that was not supposed to happen. So he, he immediately looked at his mom and dad for an interpretation of, of the uh, event. Now, had the mom and dad look at him and started going, oh, no, yeah, my poor baby, oh, you must be so hurt. And start, you know, He just started you know, crying his eyes out, I would imagine. But what they did, which was really cool, was they sort of, you know, they clapped, oh, how fun, that was so good, you know. And they laughed, and he started laughing and giggling, you know what I'm saying? And so what they did is they set a productive frame rather than a counterproductive frame. Now, the, the incident in the parking lot was that I uh, was pulling into a parking space, and I what really wasn't paying attention like I should have. It was my fault, and I nearly clipped a guy as he was getting out the driver's side of his car. And immediately, he just you know he reacted. Who could blame him? But uh, he shot me a look, you know, just a nasty, nasty look. And you know, had I reacted to his reaction, had I allowed that frame to be the operating frame, you know, I would have, you know, I could have yelled back or gave him a nasty look and he would have gone, what are you, you know, what are you, and so forth. And that would have been a, you know, a terrible situation. But instead, what I did is I responded and I reset the frame. I put an apologetic smile on my face. I, I raised my hand to, you know, as the, to signal sorry. And I mouthed the words, sorry, as I smiled. And immediately he looked back at me and went, no problem. 
So, you know, all it was, it was a very simple uh, way of, of resetting. But, you know, the frame had been set. He had set a, a negative frame. Who could blame him? But what I did is I reset his frame. And from that point on, you know, I, I passed him when I was walking in the hotel and I, I was about to so apologize to him again. I was about to say, I, you know, I'm so sorry. I should have been looking where I was going. And before I could say anything, he said, oh, I'm so sorry. I should have been more careful getting out of my car. So, you know, you talk about turning an enemy into a friend, and, and that's really what it's all about. So in the, in the first example with the young child, there, when the event happened, there was actually an, a zero frame, and the parents are the one who had, took the initiative or the proactivity to set the frame. In the second example, in the, in the parking lot incident, the other guy framed at first as negative. He immediately assumed it was negative and shot you a dirty look, and you reframed it as positive. And there, it seems like m more often than not, if we take, if there's, a, there's a first mover sort of advantage. And so as the leader or the influencer, if we take the initiative and frame things from the, from the start, it's a lot more easy to go from no frame to a helpful frame than to have to reset something that's already occurred. Yeah, you, you first want to be, if at all possible, you want to be the one to set the frame. Uh, then, you know, the next best thing is to reset the frame. But yes, uh, you want to be the one, if you can possibly set it in the first place, that's what you want to do. Uh, I, I mentioned in the book, and you bring up a great point, uh, you know, I mentioned that in every um, interpersonal transaction, a frame will be set. The only question is, who's going to set the frame, you or the other person? If you allow the other person to set the frame, then what you're doing is you're depending really on nothing more than luck that they are going to, first of all, even understand the concept, which they don't. <laughs> it would, you know, they probably don't. And secondly, that they'll be conscious enough to be to set the right frame, which the chances also aren't, aren't necessarily very good. So my suggestion is you be the one to, to set the frame or, again, if you have to, to reset it. And the fifth law of ultimate influence in your book is communicate with tact and empathy. And I, I love the definition from your father. Uh, tact is the language of strength. I think a lot of people would be surprised to hear that. Yeah, yeah. Tact is the language of strength. It's, it's amazing really what it allows you to do. And yeah, I, I look at it as, um, uh, you know, there, there was a, a great book. Gosh, I, I'm sure it was written in the 40s or 50s, maybe by Les Giblin, called How to Have Confidence and Power in Dealing with People. Wonderful book. And he said, at one point in the book, he said, what counts is attaining personal satisfaction without trampling upon the egos of those you deal with. Funny how that goes back to the ego when we talk about tact, right? <laughs> right. And then he said, his, his definition of tact is the science of getting the results you want while leaving the other person's ego intact. And to me, the way you leave that other person's ego intact is by utilizing tact and, and empathy. To me, tact is, is what allows you to, to correct someone, to critique someone, to, uh, again, to be a bit politically incorrect, criticize someone, which, again, we never want to do any of those things. But we're talking about the real world, not the world we wish it would be, but the world the way it is. And there are times people do things that we need to be able to teach and correct. Somebody pays too much on a negotiable uh, item or they they uh, give the improper 
information to a customer or they're disrespectful to a coworker or a family member. We need to be able to gently and effectively correct. But we do this utilizing tech because what that does is it allows you to do so in such a way that that person, rather than, again, being defensive and resistant to you, they're going to be open to you. And it's only when they're first, when they're open to you, that they're going to be open to your suggestion. Well, the book is Adversaries into Allies, Win People Over Without Manipulation or Coercion. Bob, we have barely scratched the surface in this book. Uh, you go into a lot more depth about these five principles with lots of great advice and recommendations. Uh, where can people find out more about you and your work in this book? And I know you also provide a, a folks are able to download the, the first chapter completely free. Yeah, if they, and if they'd like to do that, they can just go to berg.com, and that's B-U-R-G.com, and they can click on the icon, the graphic of the book, and that will take them to a page where they can then uh, download chapter one to see if they like the book first, and if they do, they can always click through or uh, get the book at their local booksellers, and while they're on my homepage, they can check out the blog and connect with me on social media, and uh, I have an, a blog archive of about 400 articles and so forth, so we welcome people to uh, visit and hang around and have some fun. Fantastic. Bob Berg, thank you for joining us on Engaging Leader. Oh, my absolute pleasure. You're, you're a great guy and a great host. I appreciate being on with you. All right, Engagers, that wraps up this episode. We talked today about five principles of ultimate influence. Number one, control your own emotions. Number two, understand the clash of a belief systems. Number three, acknowledge their ego. Number four, set the proper frame. And number five, communicate with tact and empathy. Again, the book is Adversaries into Allies by Bob Berg. We will provide a link to that in our show notes as well as to links to Bob's other social media and, and contact information. You can find the show notes at engagingleader.com forward slash 64 as in episode 64. And while you're on the show notes page, I encourage you to provide your thoughts or questions in the comments section. Engaging Leader is a production of Aspendale Communications, a consulting firm where my colleagues and I partner with mid-size and large employers to attract top talent, engage employees, and deliver superior business results. Find out more at AspendaleCommunications.com. Our thanks to Joe Sherwood, our producer, Tom Hitchcock, our programming director, James Marler, our sound engineer, Cliff Ravenscraft, our podcasting advisor, Dustin Hartzler, our website engineer, J.J. Leahy, our video and web intern, Rick Tarrant, our announcer, and Christopher Seal, who composed our theme music. Until next time, remember, whether you realize it or not, you are always communicating and leading. Let's make the most of our opportunities to engage the people we care about.